Hear the word of our Lord from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, beginning in the ninth verse. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient... You shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So I think we've all been there before. You're having a conversation with somebody, and your Baptist friend is in the circle, and Maybe you don't like everything your Baptist friend says, but he goes to the local mega church that has a few thousand people in attendance, and he mentions something his pastor says. And then, as he's talking about the church service, another friend of yours gets a, uh, a vein in his temple. His face starts turning a little red. He starts scowling a little bit. And then, maybe in front of your Baptist friend, maybe not, Maybe later on, when it's just the two of you, you hear him say, I hate evangelical churches. Can you believe the way they run that? There's no liturgy. It's all meaningless. They sing some pop songs, and the pop songs are like 7-Eleven songs. You heard that one before? <laughs> Seven words sung 11 times. It's so stupid. And then the pastor goes on and on for an hour and a half preaching a sermon where you're like, what, I'm supposed to think of the, an HBO show because that's your, your sermon illustration? And then it goes right back to the songs at the end with the laser light shows and the dancing and all these people holding their hands up thinking they're holy or something. I'm not hearing law. I'm not hearing gospel. All I'm seeing is candy. It's like candy for the soul of itching ear halfway believers out there on the way to hell and don't even get him started on the coffee bar you know that's going to be there you know i went to a church once and i found a panini press they were selling sandwiches why would you sell sandwiches after the church service and they got the coffee bar there like what am i in a church or am i in a starbucks 
the dumbest thing I ever saw. I hate these churches. I think we've all heard that before. Sometimes it's from a uh, well-meaning baby boomer. Sometimes it's from a cage stage Lutheran. And we understand. There's a little bit of nuance there. But every now and then the nuance has to be stated. Why don't Lutherans do church the way evangelicals do churches? And of course there are some churches out there where the well-meaning Lutheran pastor wants to do things like the evangelicals because he wants his church to grow or something and he thinks that abandoning Lutheran traditions is going to achieve that. Spoiler alert, it won't. But let's talk about why evangelicals do what they do. Why Baptist churches do what they do. They sing some songs, they have some announcements, pastor gets up there, they read a little bit of Bible, and then there's a sermon for uh, between 45 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on the pastor. And then they sing some more songs, and then you break for lunch slash coffee slash whatever the heck it is they do. I used to be a Baptist, and I can tell you from speaking to their leadership, I did intern with a Baptist pastor way back in the day, in the olden days, the darkened days, the days that I sometimes wish I could forget. But he actually talked about this, the guy that I interned with. And the reason for it is, well, you want people to be comfortable so they can appreciate the message they're hearing. I think at the outset of it, the whole seeker-sensitive movement, the do evangelism by being really, really nice and user-friendly as a church, was born out of that. If people are comfortable, they are more likely to hear the word of God. They don't have distractions and gripes and uh, anger coming out. You know, they're not irritated. But that's when our fuddy-duddy friend opens up his mouth. Oh yeah, the church, you know, you're not supposed to like it. You're not supposed to enjoy going to church. You're supposed to have a deep and holy appreciation for what's going on. You know, when you hear kids crying in the middle of the service, that just means your church is alive. It doesn't matter if you don't hear the word of God. It doesn't matter if you didn't even hear the absolution for your sins there, pal. If you're hearing kids screaming, if you're hot and sweaty, you don't understand what's being said or why. That's real church. It's not supposed to be fun. Why don't you go back to your laser light show smokescreen dance party piece of crap thing going on? And to our friend, I would actually like to point us all to the Lutheran Confessions. In fact, let's go all the way through the commentary on the Third Commandment that good old Doc Martin Luther wrote in his large catechism. Let's just go ahead and read the whole thing. You shall sanctify the holy day, or as we put it in modern English, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. What does Martin Luther say about this? Our word, holy day, or holiday, is so called from the Hebrew word Sabbath, which properly means rest, that is, to cease from labor. Hence, our common expression for stopping work literally means observing a holy day or holiday. In the Old Testament, God set apart the seventh day and appointed it for rest, and he commanded it to be kept up holy above all other days. As far as outward observance is concerned, the commandment was given to the Jews alone. They were to abstain from hard work and to rest, so that both man and beast might be refreshed and not be exhausted by constant labor. 
In time, however, the Jews interpreted this commandment too narrowly and grossly misused it. They slandered Christ and would not permit him to do what they themselves were in the habit of doing on that day, as we read in the Gospel. As if the commandment could be fulfilled by refraining from manual labor of any kind. This was not its intention, but as we shall hear, it meant that we should sanctify the holy day, or day of rest. Therefore, according to its literal, outward sense, this commandment does not concern us Christians. It is an entirely external matter, like the other ordinances of the Old Testament, connected with particular customs, persons, times, and places, from all of which we are now set free through Christ. To offer ordinary people a Christian interpretation of what God requires in this commandment, we point out that we keep holy days not for the sake of intelligent and well-informed Christians, for those have no need of them. We keep them first for the sake of bodily need. Nature teaches and demands that the common people, manservants and maidservants who have attended to their work and trades the whole week long, should retire for a day to rest and be refreshed. Secondly, and most especially, we keep holy days so that people may have time and opportunity which otherwise would not be available to participate in public worship, that is, that they may assemble to hear and discuss God's word, and then praise God with song and prayer. This, I say, is not restricted to a particular time, as it was among the Jews, when it had to be precisely this or that day, for in itself no one day is better than another. Actually, there should be worship daily. However, since this is more than the common people can do, at least one day in the week must be set apart for it. Since from ancient times Sunday has been appointed for this purpose, we should not change it. In this way, a common order will prevail and no one will create disorder by unnecessary innovation. This, then, is the plain meaning of this commandment. Since we observe holidays anyhow, we should devote their observance to learning God's word. The special office of this day, therefore, should be the ministry of the word for the sake of the young and the poor common people. However, the observance of rest should not be so narrow as to forbid incidental and unavoidable work. Accordingly, when you are asked what you shall sanctify the holy day means, answer, it means to keep it holy. What is meant by keeping it holy? Nothing else than to devote it to holy words, holy works, holy life. In itself, the day needs no sanctification, for it was created holy. But God wants it to be holy to you. So it becomes holy or unholy on your account, according as you spend the day in doing holy or unholy things. How does this sanctifying take place? Not when we sit behind the stove and refrain from external work, or deck ourselves with garlands and dress up in our best clothes, but... As has been said, when we occupy ourselves with God's word and exercise ourselves in it. Indeed, we Christians should make every day a holy day and give ourselves only to holy activities. That is, occupy ourselves daily with God's word and carry it in our hearts and on our lips. However, as we have said, since all people do not have this much time and leisure, we must set apart several hours a week for the young, and at least a day for the whole community, when we can concentrate upon such matters and deal especially with the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Thus we may regulate our whole life and being according to God's word. 
Wherever this practice is in force, a holy day is truly kept. Where it is not, it cannot be called a Christian holy day. Non-Christians can spend a day in rest and idleness too, and so can the whole swarm of clerics in our day who stand daily in the churches, singing and ringing bells, without sanctifying the holy day, because they neither preach nor practice God's word, but teach and live contrary to it. The word of God is the true holy thing above all holy things. Indeed, it is the only one we Christians acknowledge and have. Though we had the bones of all the saints, or all the holy and consecrated vestments gathered together in one heap, they could not help us in the slightest degree, for they are all dead things that can sanctify no one. But God's word is the treasure that sanctifies all things. By it, all the saints themselves have been sanctified. At whatever time God's word is taught, preached, heard, read, or pondered, there the person, the day, and the work are sanctified by it, not on account of the external work, but on account of the word which makes us all saints. Accordingly, I constantly repeat that all our life and work must be guided by God's word if they are to be God-pleasing or holy. Where that happens, the commandment is in force and is fulfilled. Conversely, any conduct or work done apart from God's word is unholy in the sight of God, no matter how splendid and brilliant it may appear, or even if it be altogether covered with holy relics, as are the so-called spiritual estates who do not know God's word but seek holiness in their own works. Note, then, that the power and force of this commandment consist not of the resting, but of the sanctifying, so that this day should have its own particular holy work. Other trades and occupations are not properly called holy work unless the doer himself is first holy, but here a work must be performed by which the doer himself is made holy. This, as we have heard, takes place only through God's word, Places, times, persons, and the entire outward order of worship are therefore instituted and appointed in order that God's word may exert its power publicly. Since so much depends on God's word that no holy day is sanctified without it, we must realize that God insists upon a strict observance of this commandment and will punish all who despise his word and refuse to hear and learn it, especially at the times appointed. Therefore, this commandment is violated not only by those who grossly misuse and desecrate the holy day, like those who in their greed or frivolity neglect to hear God's word or lie around in taverns, dead drunk like swine, but also by the multitude of others who listen to God's word as they would to any other entertainment, who only from force of habit go to hear preaching and depart again with as little knowledge of the word at the end of the year as at the beginning. It used to be thought that Sunday had been properly hallowed if one heard a mass or the reading of the gospel. No one asked about God's word and no one taught it either. Now that we have God's word, we still fail to remove the abuse of the holy day. For we permit ourselves to be preached to and admonished, but we listen without serious concern. Remember then that you must be concerned not only about hearing the word, but also about learning and retaining it. Do not regard it as an optional or unimportant matter. It is the commandment of God, and he will require of you an accounting of how you have heard and learned and honored his word. In the same way, those conceited fellows should be chastised who, after hearing a sermon or two, become sick and tired of it and feel that they know it all and need no more instruction. 
This was precisely the sin that used to be classed among the mortal sins and was called acedia, that is, indolence or satiety, a malignant pernicious plague which, which the devil bewitches and befuddles the hearts of many so that he may take us by surprise and stealthily take the word of God away from us. Let me tell you this. Even though you know the word perfectly and have already mastered everything, still you are daily under the dominion of the devil who neither day nor night relaxes his effort to steal upon you unawares and to kindle in your heart unbelief and wicked thoughts against all these commandments. Therefore, you must continually keep God's word in your heart, on your lips, and in your ears. For where the heart stands idle and the word is not heard, the devil breaks in and does his damage before we realize it. On the other hand, when we seriously ponder the word, hear it, and put it to use, such is its power that it never departs without fruit. It always awakens new understanding, new pleasure, and a new spirit of devotion, and it constantly cleanses the heart and its meditations. For these words are not idle or dead, but effective and living. Even if no other interest or need drove us to the word, yet everyone should be spurred on by the realization that in this way the devil is cast out and put to flight, this commandment is fulfilled, and God is more pleased than by any work of hypocrisy, however brilliant. You know, something interesting about how Luther puts this in the small catechism is he makes a little tiny addition. And I, I realize that Luther wrote the small catechism before the large catechism, but one thing that he says in his explanation for children and for adults alike in the small catechism is this. He writes in the small catechism, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God and so we should not despise his word and the preaching of the same, but deem it holy and gladly hear and learn it. That word, gladly, means more like enthusiastically, but it also has the connotation of real joy. God, in his mercy and in his infinite love for you, has given you a day and a place and a community where you get to hear his holy word, which is for you. That's a good thing. That is a wonderful thing. So we should be happy to hear God's word. We should be overjoyed to go to church. That helps us to sanctify the holy day as the third commandment tells us to do. So for our fuddy-duddy friend who's eternally angry at evangelical churches, he has a point. We do have to keep that in mind, that yes, there are many big fat megachurches and evangelical churches that truly do violate the third commandment by having an unsanctified holy day. Where they should be all about the word, they are all about, well, getting butts in pews. Where they should be about the preaching of God's word and people living it, hearing it, loving it, they're putting almost all of the emphasis on how they run their service on the gladly part, on making people happy, on making them comfortable in the hopes that in some sort of trickle-down spiritual economics, these people will hear God's word and maybe absorb something a little. That's bad. Absolutely. That's something we should be avoiding so that we can actually preach God's word. But at the same time, a pastor 
or a council, elders, people who are charged as being the under-shepherds for Jesus Christ of the flock, they should bear in mind that they should make it easy for people to receive God's word and hear it gladly and to keep it holy. If we say that everything that would assist people in their comfort is evangelical nonsense that we need to abscond with, what we are saying is we don't care about the souls of the people there. Obviously, we don't want to go to the extreme of having a panini press for after service or having laser light shows to delight people's flesh. That's something we should never ever do. We don't want to go to that extreme. But on the flip side, we also don't want to be so high church that we end up having a Lutheran version of the Tridentine Latin Mass, where people don't even hear God's word. They have no comprehension of what they're doing. They're uncomfortable. They're hearing noisy children everywhere in an insane way. They're having all these issues and everything because the church refuses to accommodate human nature in the slightest because you're so holy, you see. We forget that in the explanation of the third commandment here, Martin Luther slams the way that the Roman Catholic Church was doing things at the time just as much as he slams church services or those who treat church like it's entertainment. We don't want to go to either extreme here. And we don't want to be so angry at how the evangelicals do stuff that we forget that there's kind of a point to it. Yes, if I have a church service where there's a child care team, maybe not children's church, not maybe not taking them out of the sanctuary, but a team of people that help keep those babies a little quiet during the church, that's a good thing. If we have a coffee machine so that people who are tired are less tempted to violate the third commandment because they have some coffee, they have some caffeine, they can listen better, they're nice and calm and not irritated, that's okay. That's trying to accommodate people and meet them where they are at. Do we sacrifice the word of God on account of this kind of comfort? No, not in the slightest. It is something we should absolutely keep center, centrally focused. But is it okay to have air conditioning in your church because if people freeze during the winter time and they're spending the entire church service on Sunday trying to keep warm and bundle up and not being able to hear what the pastor is saying because they're rattling their teeth, it's not a sin to have some air conditioning and some heating in the church for the summer months and the winter months. It's kind of a good idea. And I hope that the fuddy-duddy out there who has this special hatred in his heart for evangelical church services realizes that. That most Lutheran churches are going to have a ceiling fan or two so that people don't get heat stroke and interrupt the service. That's okay to say. That doesn't make us evangelicals. And at the same rate, we do have to be careful because the formalism of the Roman Catholic Church during the period of the Reformation and while during a whole lot of church services in Rome today, that formalism is condemned in Holy Scripture as we read from Isaiah chapter 1 at the beginning of this little chit-chat here. God hates empty religion. Don't get me wrong, I love the liturgy. But I love liturgy that means it over liturgy that is going through the motions. 
God wants your heart in this. When you do confession and absolution at the beginning of the divine service, are you actually confessing your sins? Or are you just reading words on a piece of paper or in your hymnal? When you say, thanks be to God at hearing his word, are you actually thanking God for hearing his word, for the blessing and gift that he so graciously gives us in the divine service? Because if you're not, I fail to see too, too much of a difference between the evangelical church service that doesn't mean it when they say they're worshiping God and the dry liturgy where people don't mean what they are reading. They don't mean what they are saying. Our hearts really should be aligned with God in this moment. We should take it seriously and mean everything we say in the liturgy. Otherwise, we're falling into the same condemnation that Rome did. We are falling into the same condemnation that we heap upon the evangelicals. And we are falling upon the same condemnation that ancient Judah fell under in the book of Isaiah. Where our new moons and Sabbaths, by which we mean the nice long hour and a half burgundy book divine service setting for, that really doesn't mean anything to God if you don't mean it. If you're not actually reaching out to worship him, if you're not receptive to his word, rejoicing at the absolution, looking forward to the Eucharist, looking forward to Christ coming to you with his body and blood to strengthen, refresh, and forgive you as we all need. In fact, I would say if you're having a conversation with somebody who is a Baptist or maybe who is Reformed or PCA or whatever, and they're asking you, why you don't like evangelical church services very much or why you want to go to a half Catholic kind of semi-mass Lutheran service. You know, we are diet Catholics after all. A good answer to give them would be to highlight the positives of our liturgy and our church service over and against bashing these other denominations and how they go about things. It is enjoyable to be in church on Sunday. It really should be. I look forward and I cherish hearing that my sins are forgiven. I love hearing law, gospel, and the third use of the law. I love confessing the creed with all these other Christians that we with one voice please the Lord our God with the expression of faith handed down to us by Christians of yore. I love that, absolutely, everything about it. And I love that Lutherans are so sing-songy. We love to sing. We love music. Do we have to have pop songs? Do we have to have 7-Eleven songs? Seven words sung 11 times? <laughs> no, we don't. Because the music that we sing, the hymns that we sing, are of a higher quality, both in a musical sense and in a theological sense, than a lot of these baptist and non-denominationally churches. It's okay to say that. And it's okay to say that a church that has fellowship after the divine service, when we have our coffee hour or our little slice of coffee cake after, that we are all refreshed by God's word, which means that the fellowship does not descend into high school style cliques and people not really wanting to talk to those who are more vulnerable. Since we're all refreshed, we've all confessed our sins, we have a deeper fellowship with one another that I greatly value. Tell that to your evangelical friend who wants to know why you're singing out of a book and hanging out with old people. Show them the value of the divine service. Show them the incredible treasure 
that we have received from our Lutheran forefathers to enjoy hearing God's word. And for people to accommodate us isn't a bad thing. To accommodate my old Adam that wants nothing but comfort, that's not sinful. It's honestly just dealing with something and getting it out of the way so that I can hear the important stuff and focus on it. But can we focus on that positive that the Lutheran church service is honestly just superior to and more enjoyable than the stuff figured out by focus groups in the 90s to maximize the amount of butts in pews? In all honesty, I think that's a better way to put it than our uh, angry but understandable fuddy-duddy friend. Amen and amen.